0: Uh, once again, as always, I'd like to uh, wish you all a very pleasant good morning and uh, wonderful Lord's Day. Very uh, grateful for the time that we have together to worship and also spend some quality time studying God's Word. Today's class is entitled Cleanse Both Flesh and Spirit. That is a snippet of a verse we're going to be looking at, specifically 2 Corinthians 7, verse 1. We're going to be looking at that verse as well as some of the lead-up to that, some of the context in which Paul writes those words. And this class is a nice segue from the previous session we had last Sunday, in which we talked about this idea of the new temple, or our bodies being a temple, and Paul's imagery there kind of goes into what we're going to be discussing today, I also added a little subheading to this class, Completing Holiness, that's another quote from the verse we're going to be looking at, we're going to be talking and breaking down these verses today, kind of looking at what does this mean, because there's a lot here, there's only a few verses, but there's a lot to go through, a lot of implications, a lot of things we can discuss in regards to our overall topic, which is the flesh and the spirit. This duality that we experience um, as Christians living in our earthly realm. So we're going to be talking about that today. Before we begin, I've asked uh, Mr. Isaac Wright to lead us in a word of prayer. So we're going to do that. Let's pray. All right. So before we begin with this next session, I want to just do a little review to uh, go over some things we talked about last time, or maybe if you weren't here. This idea that we're discussing, that Paul discusses, we looked at 1 Corinthians last time, was that he's writing to a church in Corinth, and he's writing to these members, and he says that you are a temple. And the first time he says it is in chapter 3, and he's talking about them collectively as members of a church. And then later he says it again uh, in the book, and he says it in an individual. So you have two senses in which he uses this term temple. In a collective sense and an individual sense. And then we went back and talked about kind of the history of God's temple or God's reconciliation. First you have the Garden of Eden. Man starts out dwelling with God in a shared space. You have the fall which takes that apart. And then you have God implementing different variations and different uh, incarnations of the Garden of Eden, you could say, starting with the tabernacle, this idea that there is going to be a sacred space here on earth that God can come, inhabit, and dwell, and have a uh, reconciliary relationship with his creation, with his followers. The tabernacle then gives way to what? What does uh, David want to establish? Okay the temple, right, so a little bit more permanent. You have kind of this evolution here now, you have a temple that is going to be in one location, <clears throat> kind of serves the same purpose though, same functionality. And the temple, over the next uh, thousand years, we talked about, is kind of a tenant of Jewish life. It is the epicenter, and a lot of Jews put a lot of stock in faith in the temple and the work that is done there. And God through the course of the Old Testament as well as the life of the Jewish people in the New Testament says that this is not going to stay the case. Um, The idea and the intention of the temple has kind of gotten twisted and distorted and I'm sending a new temple. And of course we know that that takes the form of his son, Jesus Christ. And Jesus is targeted by both the Jews and ultimately the Romans as well, for this supplantation of the temple, is that Jesus, while he was here, was doing the work that was thought to be the work of the temple. And you see this building in his ministry, is he does these things, he forgives sins and things of that nature. And this puts a target in his back, and we talked about John chapter 2, as you have almost this inevitable showdown, Between him and the temple, when he goes in, throws the money changers out of his father's house, and it's almost as if, you know, it's a showdown. Jerusalem isn't big enough for the both of them. The temple is going to be passing away, and it's going to be replaced by something else. Jesus goes um, after his resurrection, he ascends to heaven, and then we have this new sense of the temple, of what he sends to us, uh, kind of the Holy Spirit, communion, guidance, and now the temple is the church as well as its members. So any questions or comments? Because we kind of ran out of time at the last class. Did have anybody want to share anything from anything we've discussed before we get too much into the new stuff? Okay, so we'll go ahead and start if you want to go over to the book of 2 Corinthians, now we're looking at the second letter that Paul writes uh, to the church in Corinth. We're going to be starting in chapter 6, verses 14, I believe. Yep. So 2 Corinthians six fourteen, and we're going to be reading through the end of the chapter and up to the beginning of the next chapter. It begins like this. Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. For what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? Or what fellowship has lights with darkness? What accord has Christ with Belial? Or what portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? What agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God. As God said, I will make my dwelling among them and walk among them and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Therefore go out from their midst, and be separate from them, says the Lord, and touch no unclean thing, and then I will welcome you. I will be a father to you, and you shall be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. 2 Corinthians 7 verse one begins this way. Therefore, since we have these promises, beloved, Let us cleanse ourselves from everything that contaminates body and spirit, completing holiness in the fear of God. And there's a lot of debate um, as to whether or not this really should be the beginning of a new chapter, because it seems to go right along with the previous verses. It's always weird to start a chapter with therefore, so a lot of people kind of like to link these together. And as you can see, as we go back through these, um, there's a reason for that, is it's all connected. Um, so let's just kind of look at some of these things that Paul says. So once again, writing to the Corinthians, he's addressing specific problems they have. And beginning in verse 14, he talks about one of the biggest problems is that they are being yoked with things that they shouldn't be yoked with. Um, this is some Old Testament imagery that we've seen before. What, what is the metaphor here? What is yoking? Or what does that mean to be equally or unequally yoked? What are we talking about here? In a literal sense.
1: Well that'd be using other people as friends when you should be using Christians.
0: Okay, yeah, that's what Paul's saying in this context here.
1: It's bound together.
0: Bound together, okay. Well that is you have
2: two ox that are linked together and yeah. there's a strong and there's a weak and instead of making progress they're just going in circles and they're not
0: getting it. Yeah, exactly. That's the idea here, is that Paul is talking about um, using the imagery of kind of oxen or other animals, is that a yoke would be put around two animals, and the idea would be that it would be to join the animals together and get some momentum or some forward progress. And this is actually a spiritual reiteration of um, a physical command (coughs) that is back in Deuteronomy, 22, verse 9, is um, you have this command to the Jewish people to actually not yoke two different animals together. Um, That you wouldn't put an ox or a donkey or, you know, a donkey and a goat, you wouldn't join those things together. Why? Because it's not going to be productive. That's not, uh, you're not going to get the result that is intended for the work that you are trying to do. And that's the imagery that Paul is pulling out here is saying that if you are going to be joining yourselves with things that aren't going to be moving you towards spirituality, towards holiness, then you're going to have a problem. Because in the life of a Christian, no progress isn't just pro... or like no progress at all. It's actually lots of progress as we're moving backwards. Um, this verse sometimes is used to apply to a specific situation... In a Christian's life, um, does anyone know what I'm talking about? What what kind of things have you heard this verse used to advise against? Marrying
1: an unbeliever.
0: Marrying an unbeliever. Yeah, that's the one I most commonly hear applied to this verse, and I don't quite know if that's fair exactly because in the previous letter, Paul mm-hmm. talks about marrying unbelievers and talks about the complications of doing that, but he doesn't specifically. Forbid it, and he even talks about you know sometimes the benefits that can come from doing it. This seems to be an a uh, you know explicit don't do this thing. So sometimes when I hear that, I'm not quite sure that that's the proper application of uh, exactly what he's saying here. Is that Paul doesn't say you can't marry an unbeliever, but he's saying you know you shouldn't be equally yoked, but I think kind of maybe the seed of that idea is the seed of influence, right? The people that we're going to spend the most of our time with, people such as our spouses, are the people that are going to have the biggest impact or the biggest effect on us. We want to make sure that those people are people that we are able to encourage and build up and bring closer to Christ. There seems to be this idea, you know, there's a trade-off, right? When we are Christians are interacting with other Christians, strong in the faith, iron sharpens iron, we both become more edified, we both leave the experience of fellowship being stronger. When you're interacting with the world, there's kind of this push and pull, right? Paul doesn't say, he makes it clear back in 1 Corinthians 5, that we're not supposed to cut ourselves off from the world completely, we're supposed to be in the world yet not of the world. We can interact and spend time with people and things in this world, but what's the caveat there? We need to be the stronger force. We need to be guiding the things and the people of this world to uh, more more of our side, more of, um, you know, this, this side of, uh, of God and his work and his intention for creation rather than letting it bring us out. And having the, you know, wherewithal and... The consciousness to realize when we are being pulled and it's not always very uh, evident it's not always the most noticeable sometimes a lot of times sin is a very subtle uh, traction that takes over time and if we're not careful and we let it slip we can have these things that we don't necessarily intend to be yoked with we can get that yoke over us over time and it pulls us away from that and I think there's many things in our life, speaking personally, that I let that be the case and I need to try harder and I do try harder to not have that be the case in my life, but sometimes we have this idea that we are so strong that we can interact with this for a little bit or we can have this in our life, but it's really not gonna affect us. We're stronger than that, we know better, so that's okay if we have it around and I think That kind of gets into what Paul says later on in this verse, or when he says, what agreement has the temple of God with idols? When he's writing to the Corinthians, he's talking in a literal sense. This is apparently something they're still struggling with. We talked about this last class. Their uh, their problem with temple idolatry. But we, of course, know that we have idols today in our lives, and that's kind of what happens, is we talked about the mindset they have. Oh, I'm not getting rid of God. I'm just having these things as well as God. Do we do that with things in our lives as Christians? Do we say, uh, you know, I still have God. God is the most important thing to me. But I can have this over here as well. We can find all sorts of justifications and reasons in our head for not wanting to get rid of the things that deep down we know would probably be better off just completely getting rid of them. So he goes on, uses some other metaphors here. Uh, He says, what fellowship has light with darkness, right? This is classical, fundamental theme to the Bible, and just kind of all throughout culture, light and darkness, clear separation. God created light, it's the first thing he created, to remove the darkness, to make a delineation, a separation there. What accord has Christ with Belial? That's an interesting word. Anyone know what Belial is? Have you heard that before? Okay, so Belial, this is just kind of a little fun fact, but it is really interesting and kind of sheds some light on the scripture. Belial is a Hebrew word um, that was used in old rabbinic rabbinic text as um, kind of translates to uh, worthlessness or something that's just not good at all. Actually, there's a variation of this word, uh, Belial, that means unyoked. I think Belial is like without and yael in uh, Hebrew is like worth. So the word literally means without worth. You have this verse used in things like uh, 1 Samuel 2.12 when it talks about um, the, the sons of Eli being worthless men or men of Belial. And this word has um, over time in rabbinic and Talmudic tradition been used as a kind of like a personification of the devil himself or Satan that's why it's capitalized here. Translator um, is kind of putting it, so you can think of it in both ways, you know. What afford has Christ with Satan, or what afford has Christ with worthlessness? Both kind of get this idea across here. Um, and then if you're a fan of more, um, you know, post-enlightenment literature, Milton's Paradise Lost also has a character named Elisle in it, and that's kind of also Um, propagated this kind of name or this idea of Satan. Uh, What portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? And then, like we talked about, temple of God. If we are the temple, what what agreement do we have with idols? We're not supposed to. Um, Any thoughts or comments on anything we've discussed thus far? Okay. We'll go ahead and continue on. All right, so he goes on, and he starts quoting from the Old Testament again. He quotes uh, a lot of um, you know, verses that we would be familiar with if we study the Old Testament here. His, uh, verses such as Ezekiel 37, 26 through 27, Isaiah 52, 11, Jeremiah 31, 9. And once again, he uses that word we talked about um, countless times. I will make my dwelling among them. And then what does he talk about here? He says, I will walk among them, I will be their God, and they shall be my people. The idea of walking among them, kind of harkening back to that original relationship that he had with Adam and Eve, where he was literally walking with them, kind of this idea that we have this spiritual walk, this uh, journey that we go on together if we uh, go through this. So I'll go ahead... Um, we we'll want to spend the bulk of our time looking at 2 Corinthians 7.1. It is just one verse, but there's a lot here that we're going to be looking at. So I kind of broke it down into five parts here. So since we have these promises, let us cleanse ourselves from everything that contaminates. Some of your translations may use the word defiles body and spirit, completing holiness in the fear of God. So beginning he's talking about previous verses. Since we have these promises, so that's the why. The what is cleansing ourselves from everything that contaminates body and spirit. And then he even gives us the how, in the fear of God. So in this one verse, you have the why, the what, and the how. Um, so let's kind of start you know, at the top here. Paul says, since we have these promises, and he's referring to all of the things that God has has said in the Old Testament he brings back up. And I think it's important to take note of the type of encouragement or the method that he uses to um, edify the Christians at Corinth. Remember we talked about people who are struggling with deep, deep sin. Um, They're having a lot of trouble, but Paul doesn't say, you guys got to knock it off because if you keep doing this, you're going to be lost and there's nothing that I'm going to be able to do to help you. You guys just got to... Stop where you are and get back on track, get your head in the game. What he does is he reiterates the reasons that they have for joy and rejoicing. And he brings out, you know, the hope that we have and the blessing that it is and the benefits you have from living your life in the opposite direction is he points out the good and the benefits of having God as your father in this covenant relationship. He doesn't completely remove, you know, the fear of punishment. He talks about the fear of God and the reverence we need to have and the acknowledgement that there are consequences, that the wages of sin are death. But he doesn't use that as the driving motivator. I think that's an important um, note for us to take in our evangelism is we need to be showing the benefits and the beauty of the promises of God and let that be what uh, primarily drives us to um, show Christ's love to others. Uh, Any comments or thoughts that we might initially have about anything in 2 Corinthians 7.1? Yes, sir. Uh, Well, this is just kind of touching on a few
3: verses toward the end of chapter 6. That the way he's referring back to the Old Testament and the situation where they weren't. They didn't want God with them. They did not want God among them. So when I read these verses, I don't think of some future time. I think that Paul is telling them God should be among you and in you today. Absolutely, yeah. But he said that 2,000 years ago, right? hmm So these verses really should set in our minds that we don't want to be anything like what the Old Testament uh, people who failed to seek God in their life. We cannot be like them. We have to seek God today, even though apparently it is not a situation where we're looking right at the face of God. These verses are being applied to the church. So... Uh, it's just a big thing.
0: Yeah, yeah very important. Um, also just really cool to see, you know, the transformation of how, you know, the temple, the things that God says about his covenant with his people remain so true for the people, the Christians, not only in the first century, but for us today. Yeah, great thoughts. Uh, anyone else? Uh, yes. No. Uh, real quick, Isaac and then Sorry. I'm tacking on to that a little bit differently. Um,
2: when I think about the Israelites, what I think of kind of is how much they fell away, but then also how much they repented. And so to me, one of the promises that we have is, is already come to pass. God is kind of, part of the Old Testament is God is saying, look how many times I will take you back. No matter how many times you get dirty, I will clean you again if you do. You know, if you want to be clean, and so absolutely, you know, we need to not be like the Israelites when they walked away from God. But we do need to be like them in the fact that there was always some who came back.
0: Absolutely, yep. And we're going to get into that in just a bit here. Yeah. Sorry, Jay. Did you have a point?
1: Well, I'm not trying to justify any sins that we might commit, mm-hmm. but he's making point here he's going to dwell among them and this is a promise that Paul is playing on he isn't going to dwell where sin is but he will dwell with us and be patient with us as he's proven hundreds of years before Christ Uh, he waited and waited and waited for people to make changes in their lives Uh, it's not that he uh, agreed with the fact that they weren't living lives like they should, but he's patiently waiting. He's loving them all the time and hoping they're going to change and cleanse themselves. Um, so he's waiting here, Paul was trying to say, and he's waiting on us mm-hmm. to cleanse ourselves. Remember the promises he's made. <laughs> I'm not saying he's going to stay with us forever, but he's hoping we're gonna make a change in our lives.
0: Absolutely. Yeah, that's a great point. Uh, the patience of God is definitely a big blessing, but we need to make sure that we're not trying it or testing patience of God. Um, you know, I think we think a lot about, you know, I brought up a verse, the wages of sin is death and, you know, the ultimate results of sin. But God is very patient. God bears with us. <coughs> Um, But there are other consequences to sin that are very hard to watch someone go through, or to go through ourselves, is that the wages of sin leading to death also lead to the destruction of, you know, job opportunities, of friendships, uh, destroys marriage, destroys the body as well. We talked about, you know, body and spirit, um, the effect that, you know, the effect that... um, people who are addicted to things such as uh, drugs or sexual activity, these things are not uh, meant to be abused. And, you know, doing so has an effect that is, you know, irreversible. While the effect of sin, while we are living in a relationship with God, is you know, for uh, this idea of cleansing and reversing and being able to come back in repentance, there are effects of sin in this life that will you know, um, affect us in very painful ways if we're not careful. And that is also painful for God to watch, but that's part of his patience, is watching us you know, uh, go through these things and do these things to ourselves, all the while waiting, like the father of the prodigal son, to receive us. And we'll kind of look at this previous verse I have. I went back and highlighted. Um, he says, I will be... He says, therefore go out from them midst and separate from them. This is the Lord. Uh, is this one I'm looking for? <clears throat> um, I'm
1: That's
0: all right. Um, this idea, yeah, okay. I will be a father to you. That is it. I highlighted that because some translations say, um, I will uh, be a father to you or I will receive you with favor. Kind of this idea that. I will receive you as a father does his child. Um, so happy and joyful to see you and have you. Um, and you shall be sons and daughters to me. I will welcome you uh, with you know with this favor. Um, you know, there is this idea of grace is unmerited favor. Our salvation we have is given to us uh, not of anything that we have done, but because Christ first loved us. But there is also merited favor that we can find with God as well, right? This idea that we are uh, instructed to do these things and to continue on in a relationship. We've been put into this relationship by grace, but we also have instructions and ways of continuing in this relationship and earning God's favor and staying in this relationship. And this is all covenantal uh, language that he uses here that he's quoting. It's all connected from those uh, other classes that we've talked about. Um, A verse in Hebrews, kind of going along with this thought. Make every effort to live in peace with everyone and to be holy. Without holiness, no one will see the Lord. So I wanted to talk about the part in this verse about completing holiness. Okay? Any thoughts on what that means when Paul says it, completing holiness?
1: a young man that has kept contact with me for probably 40 years, he's a Christian. He's done some teaching and preaching. I was talking with him. He, he continually called me through the years, and uh, one day he talk, he called me and was talking and told me that he had been now divorced his third wife, and I said. What? He said, Yeah, we're divorced. I said, Don't you think it's about time that you choose a different circle of friends? He has never talked to me since, and that was about four years ago. But I think that's connected with what we're talking about here. Mm-hmm. Unless we make the effort to cleanse ourselves and keep ourselves free from uh, contaminants. Mm-hmm potential uh, things that pull us down, there's nothing the Lord can do for us. It's a choice that we make.
0: Absolutely. It requires cooperation. Um, Yeah, that word contaminate or defiling, what exactly does that word mean? Just like in a base definition. What do we think of when we think of contaminant?
2: Thinking something pure, impure.
0: Something impure? Yeah. Um, that word, especially uh, for me, I work in a restaurant. If you've worked in the food service industry, that's a big that's a big concept, contamination. There's something called cross-contamination that you have to be very careful of. It's a big responsibility when you're working and making food for other people because certain things cannot mix with other things. Even meat, you have to keep um, certain meat. You can't mix, you know, like, meat or beef with chicken or uh, put this with this. Um, You also have to cook things on certain stoves so that um, you know it doesn't mix with other things that people might have allergies to or um, you know problems with. Uh, There's all sorts of, especially now there's dietary things, um, gluten restrictions, and we even have different color cutting boards so we know what to cut on Certain things. We take very extensive steps to make sure that things don't get contaminated. Why? So people don't get sick. That is what happens when things are contaminated. Uh, you know, it's a bad situation where things can fester, things can grow, and things um, that are bad, that aren't going to be healthy. Last class we talked about this idea of the responsibility of sharing. A temple with the Holy Spirit being a place for God to dwell. You want to keep that clean. You do not want things contaminating, growing and festering. Yeah, those he point? I
1: was just uh, thinking about the perfecting holiness in the fear of God point that we were on a minute mm-hmm. ago. And I really love my commentary, so this is from my commentary. Okay. Uh, continual growth in Christlikeness, holiness is both a pursuit and a gift. It is a pursuit in that we must strive to follow Christ. And it is a gift because holiness can only come from God's gracious hand. So I, I like that.
0: I like that as well. Yeah,
4: Jerome. Yeah, I like that too. Um, I, I feel like it's <clears throat> needful to make a comment here because first off, God never gives us permission to sin. He never does. Mm-hmm. There's never any place in the Bible that says go ahead and do that. It's no problem. It is a problem. On the other hand, the, the reason we have the bulk of the old law, the reason that law was given was it was added because of transgressions. So you see in that the patience of God, yes. how big the Old Testament is and how much of its law and all that is added because of transgressions of man. So God has been patient with man throughout this whole process and continues to be. This idea of holiness is connected to sanctification. Mm-hmm. Um, the word is connected linguistically to sanctification. It means to be set apart to God. If we get in our minds this idea that to be accepted by God means that we have to be as perfect as God is, that's a killer. That is a killer. We won't be as perfect as God and if we have that mindset we'll drive ourselves crazy and we do.
2: Um,
4: So yes, we want to be sanctified. We want to be set apart. We want to be good. We don't want to sin. When we do, we have an advocate with the Father. Um, that's why Jesus died, and that's why we have such a thing as grace. And if we forget that, we're in big trouble. <laughs>
0: Absolutely. That, uh, that's actually a nice segue to my next point that I was um, going to make. Is The reason I like that commentary so much, it talks about a continual pursuit or something that we are going to be doing uh, in a perpetual thing is that some translations say perfecting holiness, and I feel like, just as Jarrell said, that's a scary word as Christians. When we see that word perfect, we're like, so intimidated, right? Because we have an example of a standard who was the perfect lamb, and we know that what made him the perfect lamb was that he was the only one. By that very definition, we're not going to be perfect. So I think kind of this idea of completing holiness or continuing in holiness is much less intimidating and much more gets the point across, is that we are going to mess up. Just like the Israelites and just like the Corinthians, we are going to have things that we struggle with. But it's our reaction um, to the sin and the idea that because we have this covenant with God, that we are renewed and cleansed. And so you have you know both an individual responsibility, but also this use of this gift that God gives us is the forgiveness of sins when we uh, repent. Real quick, I'll get to you in just a second, Isaac. But um, another thing going on that I was thinking of, uh, Shirelle speaking, is that you have this idea of going out from their midst, right? When we talk about sanctification, we as Christians are doing things in the physical that reflect spiritual. We talked about you know, the idea that we are set apart by the Holy <clears throat> Spirit in our baptism, that we are marked as ones who are children of God, in the same way, you know, if we're sanctified, if we're supposed to be apart, therefore go out from their midst, is this idea that we should be physically removing ourselves from scenarios and situations in which there is sin. And that is reflecting the spiritual truth is that we are set apart, that we are away from the things that corrupt. Uh, go ahead, Isaac. Kind
2: of. To that and your last point about how much is completing holy li- holiness my job versus how much of it is God's job, what I've seen with and have been told by people is, you know, God is the only one that can make us <coughs> the only one that can make us holy, but my job is to draw near to Him so that He can do that, mm-hmm. and so. The more that I do, the more I, the more I pursue God and kind of ask Him and myself, you know, what do You want me to do? Reading what, you know, what is it that You want me to do? He's going to cleanse me, and I'm going to be cleansing myself because I'm I'm trying to align myself with, you know, the old like, what would Jesus do? Mm-hmm. Kind of thing. And Absolutely. what I what I see in people who have who have lived this out for decades is eventually you you start getting to the point where certain things don't tempt you as much anymore. The more you align yourself with God, the more he puts his spirit in you, the more you can even be in worldly situations. I'm not saying go seek them out, but something that I might have more of a struggle with, uh, my grandparents could be in that same situation, but they're not tempted Because their heart is desiring for God. And that's something that I'm, I think it's a struggle everyone deals with, but it's something that I I have to kind of keep in my mind of like, I I want to, it makes me think of Jesus' prayer, may my will and yours be, not just that I defer to your will, but I want them to be the same thing. And so the more I attempt to pursue God, the more He will make me like Him. And the more that this distinction, the more I will be set apart, even though I'm already in the world.
0: Absolutely, yeah. That's that's very well put. Uh, Another verse I was thinking of. Therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, let us be thankful and so worship God acceptably with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. It's another uh, verse talking about, you know... This thankfulness, this motivation we have, the fact that we have this wonderful kingdom, reverence and awe, for our God is consuming fire, right? You have know, the motivation.